Well, hello, Emmanuel Church family. Here we are in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, and we are in our homes, and we can't meet together as a church family. And so if you're like me, some days you get really discouraged, and you get kind of anxious, and then other days you have the joy of the Lord as your strength. And so um, we're going on this roller coaster of emotions, and it's just, it's a weird time. It's a strange time. It's, it's a difficult time. And so what I want to do in these brief teachings in the middle of the week is just trying to encourage you with some things I've been thinking about as how we can deal with this. I don't want to always be talking about how to deal with the coronavirus issue because it seems like that's what everybody's talking about. Um, but I do want to talk about an issue that got me thinking a few months ago um, in our Monday morning men's study, we went through the book of Nehemiah, uh, which is a very interesting book about the rebuilding of the wall. Uh, for 70 years, the Israelites had been in Babylonian captivity. They were allowed to come back, and the wall was broken down. It was in shambles, and so Nehemiah leads the people to rebuild the wall. Uh, there's a lot of opposition that comes in the midst of this. And so halfway through the book, in chapter 7, uh, they finish the wall. And you would think that that would be the end of the book of Nehemiah. It's about rebuilding the physical wall of Jerusalem. They get it done in chapter 7. Uh, they take a census to count everybody. But that's not where the book ends because God is more interested in not just rebuilding the wall, that had been broken down. But ultimately, the book of Nehemiah is about God rebuilding the people. And so in Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, you see some of the most dramatic expressions of revival and spiritual awakening in the Old Testament. Now, I'm kind of fascinated with the theme of, of revival and spiritual awakenings. I, I've studied this for many years. Uh, the First Great Awakening in America, the Welsh Revival, uh, different types of, uh, of revivals. And so I've, I've kind of studied this over the years. And so there's a lot of confusion about what is revival. You talk about the word revival. We need revival in our land. God, God, please bring revival. And so let me start by stating what revival is not, because there's a lot of confusions. What is revival not? Well, revival is not a scheduled meeting in a tent somewhere, okay? It's not something you put on a church calendar. You can't advertise, hey, we're going to have a revival next month. Come to this meeting, uh, that's often the way the term is used. Sometimes you have a lot of weird emotional frenzies occurring with revival. And so there's a lot of confusion about what revival is. People think it's something you can put on a calendar. It's a series of meetings. It's, a, it's a, some weird things that happen in tents or, or maybe what you see with televangelists. And so what exactly is revival? Uh, because I would say this. Probably most of us that are watching this right now have not truly experienced a widespread revival. Now, you may have. There may be pockets of it that have happened around the world and maybe in our nation. But when we're talking about a great movement of God, most of us probably have not experienced that. And so as we're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, we need to start thinking biblically, well, what, what's God doing? Is God preparing the soil for something great? We don't know the secret things of God. 
But one of the things that we need to do is we need to pray for revival. We need to understand revival. And we need to understand what the Bible teaches about revival. And so one of the best books I've read on um, revival from historical, biblical, theological perspective is, is a book by John Armstrong called True Revival, What Happens When God's Spirit Moves. And so uh, this is how he defines revival. This is the way he defines it. Quote, a revival is a sovereign interruption of the Holy Spirit of God, powerfully sweeping across the visible church and blessing the normal ministry of the Word of God and prayer in the lives of both believers and new converts. It is best understood as an extraordinary, intense season of blessing upon normal New Testament Christianity. I like that definition because you're doing the normal things that you should be doing as a church. And we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But what you normally do as a church, revival is God brings a season of blessing on those normal means in an extraordinary way. And so as we think about revival, what I want us to do is I want us over the next few weeks together in these midweek teachings to just look at Nehemiah's chapters 8, 9, and 10 and just see the marks. What are the genuine biblical marks of revival? When revival comes to a people, when revival comes to a church or to a community or even to a nation, what does it really look like? And so you can look at history to see some examples of that. And again, history is is, is, is basically what it is. You're looking historically. Or you can look at what the Bible teaches of what truly happens when God shows up in power. So what I want to do is I want to read from Nehemiah chapter 8, and then I hope to make this brief to just look at four characteristics of, of revival um, from this main idea. And so here's the, here's the first mark of revival that we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. Um, it's a recovery, a recovery of the hunger, authority, and preaching of God's Word. That's one of the first signs of spiritual awakening and revival is a recovery of the hunger, the authority, and the preaching of God's Word. So, let's read together, if you have a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. I know we're coming in halfway in the middle of a book, and there's a lot of things that have gone on before that, but just trust me, the, the, the wall's been built, and now God's going to do a movement to get the people's attention. So, let's read from Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for him for this purpose. And beside him stood, and I'm not going to read all these names because there's a bunch of crazy names there that are hard to pronounce. But then in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
and then all these different men with weird names help the people to understand the law while the people remain in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. All right, so let's just look at some marks of revival under this big heading of a recovery of the hunger, the authority, and the power of God's preached word. The first thing we see is there's, there's an insatiable hunger for God's word. Now, what does insatiable mean? It means you, you can't get enough of it. There's a hunger for God's word. I want you to notice how the people are described there in verse 1. All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate, both men and women, and even the children. So everybody gathered together there as a unified body. There were probably between 30,000 and 50,000 people that gathered for this huge worship service, this huge preaching event at the water gate. And so it wasn't just a few people here and there that were hungry for God's word. I mean, it was widespread. It was affecting everyone. Um, this, this wasn't just like a, a weird thing that was happening over here with, with just a few people involved. The entire nation gathered together. And what do they do? They're the ones that go get Ezra and bring him and say, Ezra, we want to know what the law is. It says, um, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. So they went and got Ezra, the, the priest. They went and hunted him down and said, hey, we want you to lead us. We want you to preach to us. We're ready to hear God's word. There's this hunger. And how long have they, are they reading the word of God? Look at verse 3. He read it from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Okay, so probably around 6 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. How would you like to be a part of a nine-hour worship service where it's just the reading of the Word of God? And here's what I find interesting. No, nobody complained. Nobody got antsy. Nobody got uncomfortable. People were hungry for God's word. And how do we know that? Well, because at the end of verse 4 it says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were attentive. They, they, they were waiting with bated breath to see what God had to say. They were listening. They, it wasn't like they were bored with God's word. It wasn't like they had better things to do. They were on the edge of their seat waiting to hear what God had to say to them from Ezra who was preaching. Now, I want you to notice something. What are they reading for all this time? The book of the law. The book of the law. Now, what is the book of the law? Well, we call it the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Reading out loud. And nobody complained. There was a hunger to hear God's word. And think about Ezra. With, with this mass crowd in front of him, they built a platform for him to stand up on, almost like a pulpit where he could stand, because obviously there's no PA system back then, where he could stand up and he could preach to these thirty to 50,000 people. So you have to ask yourself a question. Are you in a period of revival? 
Because in periods of revival, there is an insatiable hunger for God's word. It's not just a few people here and there. It's massive. An entire city, an entire church, an entire nation has a hunger for God's word. We want to know what says, what, what, what is thus saith the Lord? What does God have to say to us? We are ready. We want to hear God's word. Okay. So not only is there a insatiable hunger for God's word, but secondly, there's an incredible submission to God's word. There's a submission to God's word. What do they do in verse 5? In verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. It, it, it was as if there's this mass submission to God's word. He begins to read it, and the people stand in honor of God's word. And what do they do? They are lifting their hands in verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Now, now why are they standing and lifting up their hands at the reading of God's word? In that culture, in that ancient Jewish culture, the lifting of the hands was an attitude of submission, of surrender. So here's what they're bodily doing. When the word of God is being read, not only are they attentively listening to it, but they're standing up with their hands up saying, I'm submitting under the authority of God's word. And then notice what else they did in verse 6. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped their Lord with their faces to the ground. So not only did they stand with submission, but as the word was being read, they got down on their faces and bowed to the Lord in humble submission. So, so let me ask you the question. Are we in a period of revival? Is this what you see widespread? I'm not talking about just a pockets here and there. Revival means it's, it's a, large, a large area, or a large coverage of what God's doing. Is there a hunger for God's word? Are people wanting to listen to God's word? Are people surrendering under the authority of God's word? Are people bowing their faces to the ground under, under humble adoration to God and for his word? Okay, the third aspect of you know that revival is truly coming, is you've got the importance of preaching God's word. Now, I will go to my grave with the statement that the church rises and falls on the preaching of God's word. And in some quarters in our nation and around the world, preaching has fallen on hard times. Very, very, um, I don't have the opportunity to go to other churches and find out what people are preaching, but, but, but I hear stories and, I, and people have visited other churches and come talk to me, and I'm not here to cast aspersion in any type of church or any other pastor, but I will say this. We have lost that authority of the man of God standing before the people of God with a seriousness and a gravity saying, thus saith the Lord, where he actually reads the text explains the text, exposes the text, and actually preaches from the authority of the Bible. Look at verse 7, what happens. These men, <clears throat> Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, and all these men with weird names, these Levites, they helped the people to understand the law 
while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. Okay, here's what's going on. Okay, let me just explain to you what preaching is. Okay, here, here's, it's very simple. Okay, preaching is when a pastor reads the Bible, explains the Bible, and then applies the Bible. He reads it, he explains it, he applies it, and he keeps going back to it. He doesn't go off on tangents. He doesn't preach his own opinions. Everything is tethered to the Word of God. And so one of my goals in preaching is I want you as my congregation to follow along with me with your own eyes and say, That's, I know exactly where Pastor Sean got that, and I want you to be able to go home and do this for yourself to be able to see that everything I say from this pulpit comes directly from God's Word. And so here's what's going on. These Levites were strategically placed throughout the crowd so that they could do small group interpretation. Okay, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses were written in Hebrew. Okay, these people were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. So many of them didn't know Hebrew. They only spoke Aramaic. And so there had to be some translation. There had to be some explanation. Um, They had to be able to clearly be able to present truth. And so, literally, when it says there in verse 8, they, gave, they read from the law clearly and gave the sense, literally it means to break it up, to go paragraph by paragraph and read the text and explain the text. So, there is a primacy of preaching. So, in times of revival, when God is, if you look at the history of revival, when God's about to pour out His Spirit and power, there is always the powerful preaching of God's truth, accompanied by a submission under that truth and a hunger and desire to hear that truth. And how do people respond to God's truth when it's preached with power? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Okay, what was their response? Just picture this in your mind, okay? 50,000 people all coming together. They're standing, hearing God's word. They have a hunger for God's word. They're holding up their hands in submission to God's word. They get down on their faces and bow. Ezra, the priest, is up there with the Levites, and they're preaching God's word. And what's the ultimate response? They weep. They mourn. Because this may have been the first time that they had actually heard true preaching of God's word, and they were cut to the heart. They were under conviction. They, They finally knew what they were doing was was wrong in the sight of the Lord. And so in times of revival, there's this overwhelming sense of God's sovereignty and God's holiness and our sinfulness and the need to repent. But then let me give you the fourth. Okay, so not only is there a hunger for God's word, not only is there a submission to God's word, not only is there the preaching to God's word, but, but ultimately, where the rubber meets the road, here's the fourth thing. There's an immediate obedience. There's an immediate obedience to God's word. Okay, look at verse 13. Immediate obedience. 
On the second day, the heads of the fathers, the houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And so, basically, verse 18 Day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay, there was immediate obedience. Now, one of the things that we see here, what's very interesting, is that in verse 13, the fathers, the heads of the households, asked the Levites to come help them study God's word. They wanted to go deeper. They wanted to be trained. Okay, so this is a true mark of revival. When dads, when fathers begin to step up to the plate and take spiritual leadership in their homes and they want to be trained, they want to be taught so that they can shepherd their own families. You know, the Puritans often talked about your home being a mini church where dads, you're almost like the pastor to your church. You're shepherding your church. Now, I know some of you watching may be single moms, and there may be different, different, different types of people watching. The, the principle is this. Whoever is whoever's in charge of your home, especially fathers, but if you're a single mom, you've got to take the responsibility to train your children in the ways of the Lord and be serious about that, to teach them to obey. And then the entire nation realizes something. As they're reading about the law of God, the people say, now wait a minute, we're we're supposed to celebrate this feast of booths. Because in Leviticus 23 and in Deuteronomy 16, God commanded the people to live in these temporary tents, these temporary booths, and they were to cover themselves with branches, and they were supposed to have this seven-day feast of booths. And so this may have been the first time they'd ever heard about this. And so the people are like, no, wait a minute. God's commanded us to do this, and we're not doing it. We better do it now. So there's immediate obedience. They don't hold a conference. They don't have a a press conference to determine whether they should do this or not. The people said, listen, if God said it, and we're supposed to get in these booths and cover ourselves with, with branches for seven days, we better do it because that's what God commanded. And so they responded with immediate obedience. The dads, the leaders of the household says, we got to get busy training our, our children, our families. And then the whole nation said, we better get busy obeying the Lord immediately. And so you may say, well, what's this whole deal of living in booths, living in tents, living in temporary shelters for seven days? What, what's the point of this? It seems like a weird, a weird thing to celebrate. Well, it's an object lesson for the Israelites. It was an object lesson for them to remember the wilderness wanderings, back in Exodus. They had been slaves in Egypt, and they had not yet had permanent homes in the Promised Land. And so they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. They were, they were sojourners. They didn't have a permanent residence. They lived in tents. And so now that they're back in the land, and now that the wall's been rebuilt, and now they're back in their homes for a period of seven days, they're to go out and live in these tents. And it's an object lesson, ultimately, ultimately to teach the Israelites to not be dependent upon their stuff, but totally dependent upon God alone. You know, in this time of this coronavirus where we are in our homes and 
Some of you may have lost your jobs and there's a lot of uncertainty. It really opens our eyes to where is our trust. And for the Israelites, it was an object lesson for them to say, you know what, I'm not going to trust in my wealth. I'm not going to trust in my government. I'm not going to trust in what I can produce. I'm going to go out and live in a tent temporarily for seven days as an object lesson to me and my family to show that we are absolutely, totally, 100% dependent upon the Lord. So in times of revival, there's a repentance, there's a dependence upon the Lord, there's a humility, there's a brokenness, there's an immediate obedience, there's a hunger for God's word, there's the elevated preaching of God's word, there's a surrender under God's word, and it's not just in a few pockets here and there, it's widespread. Now, I want to show you something crucial that happened during all this. Even though there's mourning and crying and weeping, I want you to read verse 12. All the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. And then you get down to verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And then you go back to verse 10. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So in times of revival... The joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, are we in a time of revival right now? I don't think so. Are we in a time of suffering as a nation? Absolutely. Is God doing a work to get our attention? I think so. What's our response to this? The joy of the Lord is our strength. So let me ask you some questions as you think about your own life. Do you have a hunger for God's preached word? Do you submit under the authority of God's word? Do you mourn and repent and cry and want to align yourself under the authority of God's word with immediate obedience to whatever God tells you to do? And dads, are you taking the lead in your home to be the spiritual leaders? And then is the joy of the Lord your strength? Does it bring you joy? So we should be praying definitely for revival, praying for spiritual awakening. And it may be just just that God is taking our nation through a very difficult time as this to prepare our hearts for what's on the other side. It could be that revival's right around the corner. Again, I don't know. We need to pray for it. We need to be ready for it. We can't manipulate it. We can't manufacture it. We can't control God. But we can sure pray for it. And we can sure get our hearts ready to be under the authority of God's word. And so as you live this week, would the joy of the Lord be your strength? And would you have an insatiable, you can't, you can't get enough of God's word? Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and, and he's going to get us through this. I know he's going to sustain us to the end. 
God is good. God is faithful. He does all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Would you do me a favor? If you found this teaching helpful, would you just share it on your Facebook uh, with others? Uh, there are so many people that need to hear a message of hope. And, and with the time of social distancing and not being able to be in church, uh, electronic uh, distribution of materials is a really great way to go. Um, some of you have been getting the daily devotions through First Peter that I've been sending out every day. If, you'd, if you're watching this and you're not on that list and you'd like to get that, let me know. I've been posting those on uh, my Facebook as well as the church Facebook and sending those out on email. We're trying all different ways just to stay connected, to keep you encouraged. That's really what we want to do um, as a church family. And so um, we will live stream again on Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. Uh, please, as this live stream comes on, uh, subscribe to Emmanuel's live stream. Subscribe to my live stream on Facebook so that when we go live, you'll get a notification in your Facebook. So that's the best way to kind of keep track of things. And so hopefully this has been helpful for you in the middle of the week. May God bless you. And we'll see you next time.